Section six of a half century of conflict. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. A half century of conflict by Francis Parkman. Chapter four, part two. The number of English carried off prisoners was one hundred and eleven, and the number killed was according to one list forty-seven, and according to another fifty-three, the latter including some who were smothered in the cellars of their burning homes. The names, and in most cases the ages of both captives and slain, are preserved. Those who escaped with life and freedom were, by the best account, one hundred and thirty-seven. An official tabular statement, drawn up on the spot, sets the number of houses burned at seventeen. The house of the town clerk, Thomas French, escaped, as before mentioned, and the town records, with other papers in his charge, were saved. The meeting-house also was left standing. The house of Sheldon was hastily set on fire by the French and Indians, when their rear was driven out of the village by Wells and his men, but the fire was extinguished, and the old Indian house, as it was called, stood till the year 1849. Its door, deeply scarred with hatchets, and with a hole cut near the middle, is still preserved in the memorial hall at Deerfield. Vaudreuil wrote to the minister Ponchartrain, that the French lost two or three killed, and twenty or twenty-one wounded, Royville himself being among the latter. This cannot include the Indians, since there is proof that the enemy left behind a considerable number of their dead. Wherever resistance was possible, it had been of the most prompt and determined character. Long before noon, the French and Indians were on their northward march with their train of captives. More armed men came up from the settlements below, and by midnight about eighty were gathered at the ruined village. Couriers had been sent to rouse the country, and before evening of the next day, the first of March, the force at Deerfield was increased to two hundred and fifty, but a thaw and a warm rain had set in, and as few of the men had snowshoes, pursuit was out of the question. Even could the agile savages and their allies have been overtaken, the probable consequence would have been the murdering of the captives to prevent their escape. In spite of the foul blow dealt upon it, Deerfield was not abandoned. Such of its men as were left were taken as soldiers into the pay of the province, while the women and children were sent to the villages below. A small garrison was also stationed at the spot, under command of Captain Jonathan Wells, and thus the village held its ground till the storm of war should pass over. We have seen that the minister, Williams, with his wife and family, were led from their burning house across the river to the foot of the mountain where the crowd of terrified and disconsolate captives 
friends, neighbors, and relatives, were already gathered. Here they presently saw the fight in the meadow, and were told that if their countrymen attempted a rescue, they should all be put to death. After this, writes Williams, we went up the mountain and saw the smoke of the fires in town, and beheld the awful desolation of Deerfield, and before we marched any further, they killed a sucking child of the English. The French and Indians marched that afternoon only four or five miles to Greenfield Meadows, where they stopped to encamp, dug away the snow, laid spruce boughs on the ground for beds, and bound fast such of the prisoners as seemed able to escape. The Indians then held a carousal on some liquor they had found in the village, and in their drunken rage murdered a negro man belonging to Williams. In spite of their precautions, Joseph Alexander, one of the prisoners, escaped during the night, at which they were greatly incensed, and Royville ordered Williams to tell his companions in misfortune that if any more of them ran off, the rest should be burned alive. The prisoners were the property of those who had taken them. Williams had two masters, one of the three who had seized him having been shot in the attack on the house of Stebbins. His principal owner was a surly fellow who would not let him speak to the other prisoners, but as he was presently chosen to guard the rear, the minister was left in the hands of his other master, who allowed him to walk beside his wife and help her on the way. Having borne a child a few weeks before, she was in no condition for such a march, and felt that her hour was near. Williams speaks of her in the strongest terms of affection. She made no complaint, and accepted her fate with resignation. We discoursed, he says, of the happiness of those who had God for a father and a friend, as also that it was our reasonable duty quietly to submit to his will. Her thoughts were for her remaining children, whom she commended to her husband's care. Their intercourse was short. The Indian who had gone to the rear of the train soon returned, separated them, ordered Williams to the front, and so made me take a last farewell of my dear wife. The desire of my eyes and companion in many mercies and afflictions. They came soon after to Green River, a stream then about knee-deep, and so swift that the water had not frozen. After wading it with difficulty, they climbed a snow-covered hill beyond. The minister, with strength almost spent, was permitted to rest a few moments at the top, and as the other prisoners passed by in turn, he questioned each for news of his wife. He was not left long in suspense. She had fallen from weakness in fording the stream, but gained her feet again, and, drenched in the icy current, struggled to the farther bank, when the savage who owned her, finding that she could not climb the hill, killed her with one stroke of his hatchet. Her body was left on the snow till a few of her townsmen, who had followed the trail, 
found it a day or two after, carried it back to Deerfield, and buried it in the churchyard. On the next day, the Indians killed an infant and a little girl of eleven years. On the day following, Friday, they tomahawked a woman, and on Saturday four others. This apparent cruelty was in fact a kind of mercy. The victims could not keep up with the party, and the death-blow saved them from a lonely and lingering death from cold and starvation. Some of the children, when spent with the march, were carried on the backs of their owners, partly perhaps through kindness, and partly because every child had its price. On the fourth day of the march they came to the mouth of West River, which enters the Connecticut a little above the present town of Brattleboro. Some of the Indians were discontented with the distribution of the captives, alleging that others had got more than their share, on which the whole troop were mustered together, and some changes of ownership were agreed upon. At this place dog-trains and sledges had been left, and these served to carry their wounded, as well as some of the captive children. Williams was stripped of the better part of his clothes, and others given him instead, so full of vermin that they were a torment to him through all the journey. The march now continued with pitiless speed up the frozen Connecticut, where the recent thaw had covered the ice with slush and water ankle-deep. On Sunday they made a halt, and the minister was permitted to preach a sermon from the text, Hear all people, and behold my sorrow, my virgins and my young men are gone into captivity. Then, amid the ice, the snow, the forest, and the savages, his forlorn flock joined their voices in a psalm. On Monday guns were heard from the rear, and the Indians and their allies, in great alarm, bound their prisoners fast and prepared for battle. It proved, however, that the guns had been fired at wild geese by some of their own number, on which they recovered their spirits, fired a volley for joy, and boasted that the English could not overtake them. More women fainted by the way and died under the hatchet some with pious resignation, some with despairing apathy, some with desperate joy. Two hundred miles of wilderness still lay between them and the Canadian settlements. It was a waste without a house or even a wigwam, except here and there the bark shed of some savage hunter. At the mouth of White River, the party divided into small bands, no doubt in order to subsist by hunting, for provisions were fast failing. The Williams family were separated. Stephen was carried up the Connecticut. Samuel and Eunice, with two younger children, were carried off in various directions, while the wretched father, along with two small children of one of his parishioners, was compelled to follow his Indian masters up the valley of White River. One of the children, a little girl, 
was killed on the next morning by her Kahnawaga owner, who was unable to carry her. On the next Sunday, the minister was left in camp with one Indian and the surviving child, a boy of nine, while the rest were hunting. My spirit, he says, was almost overwhelmed within me, but he found comfort in the text, Leave thy fatherless children, I will preserve them alive. Nor was his hope deceived. His youngest surviving child, a boy of four, though harshly treated by his owners, was carried on their shoulders or dragged on a sledge to the end of the journey. His youngest daughter, seven years old, was treated with great kindness throughout. Samuel and Eunice suffered much from hunger, but were dragged on sledges when too faint to walk. Stephen nearly starved to death, but after eight months in the forest he safely reached Chambly with his Indian masters. Of the whole band of captives, only about half ever again saw friends and home. Seventeen broke down on the way and were killed, while David Hoyt and Jacob Hicks died of starvation at Coos Meadows on the upper Connecticut. During the entire march, no woman seems to have been subjected to violence, and this holds true, with rare exceptions, in all the Indian wars of New England. This remarkable forbearance towards female prisoners, so different from the practice of many Western tribes, was probably due to a form of superstition, aided perhaps by the influence of the missionaries. It is to be observed, however, that the heathen savages of King Philip's war, who had never seen a Jesuit, were no less forbearing in this respect. The hunters of William's party killed five moose, the flesh of which, smoked and dried, was carried on their backs and that of the prisoner whom they had provided with snowshoes. Thus burdened, the minister toiled on, following his masters along the frozen current of White River, till, crossing the snowy backs of the Green Mountains, they struck the headwaters of the stream then called French River, now the Winooski, or Onion. Being in great fear of a thaw, they pushed on with double speed. Williams was not used to snowshoes, and they gave him those painful cramps of the legs and ankles called in Canada mal à la raquette. One morning at dawn he was waked by his chief master and ordered to get up, say his prayers, and eat his breakfast, for they must make a long march that day. The minister was in despair. After prayer, he says, I arose from my knees, but my feet were so tender, swollen, bruised, and full of pain, that I could scarce stand upon them without holding on the wigwam. And when the Indians said, You must run today, I answered that I could not run. My master, pointing to his hatchet, said to me, Then I must dash out your brains, and take your scalp. The Indian proved better than his word, and Williams was forced to struggle on as he could. God 
wonderfully supported me he writes and my strength was restored and renewed to admiration he thinks that he walked that day forty miles on the snow following the winooski to its mouth the party reached lake champlain a little north of the present city of burlington here the swollen feet of the prisoner were tortured by the rough ice till snow began to fall and cover it with a soft carpet bending under his load and powdered by the falling flakes he toiled on till at noon of a saturday lean tired and ragged he and his masters reached the french outpost of chambly twelve or fifteen miles from montreal here the unhappy wayfarer was treated with great kindness both by the officers of the fort and by the inhabitants one of the chief among whom lodged him in his house and welcomed him to his table after a short stay at chambly williams and his masters set out in a canoe for sorel on the way a frenchwoman came down to the bank of the river and invited the party to her house telling the minister that she herself had once been a prisoner among the indians and knew how to feel for him she seated him at a table spread a tablecloth and placed food before him while the indians to their great indignation were supplied with a meal in the chimney corner similar kindness was shown by the inhabitants along the way till the party reached their destination the abenaki village of st francis to which his masters belonged here there was a fort in which lived two jesuits directors of the mission and here williams found several english children captured the summer before during the raid on the settlements of maine and already transformed into little indians both in dress and behavior at the gate of the fort one of the jesuits met him and asked him to go to the church and give thanks to god for sparing his life to which he replied that he would give thanks in some other place the priest then commanded him to go which he refused to do when on the next day the bell rang for mass one of his indian masters seized him and dragged him into the church where he got behind the door and watched the service from his retreat with extreme disapprobation one of the jesuits telling him that he would go to hell for not accepting the apostolic traditions and trusting only in the bible he replied that he was glad to know that christ was to be his judge and not they his chief master who was a zealot in his way and as much bound to the rites and forms of the church as he had been before his conversion to his medicines or practices of heathen superstition one day ordered him to make the sign of the cross and on his refusal tried to force him but as the minister was tough and muscular the indian could not guide his hand then pulling out a crucifix that hung at his neck he told williams in broken english to kiss it and being again refused he brandished his hatchet over him and threatened to knock out his brains 
this failing of the desired effect he threw down the hatchet and said he would first bite out the minister's fingernails a form of torture then in vogue among the northern indians both converts and heathen williams offered him a hand and invited him to begin on which he gave the thumbnail a gripe with his teeth and then let it go saying no good minister bad as the devil the failure seems to have discouraged him for he made no further attempt to convert the intractable heretic the direct and simple narrative of williams is plainly the work of an honest and courageous man he was the most important capture of the year and the governor hearing that he was at st francis dispatched a canoe to request the jesuits of the mission to send him to montreal thither therefore his masters carried him expecting no doubt a good price for their prisoner vaudreuil in fact brought him exchanged his tattered clothes for good ones lodged him in his house and in the words of williams was in all respects relating to my outward man courteous and charitable to admiration he sent for two of the minister's children who were in the town bought his eldest daughter from the indians and promised to do what he could to get the others out of their hands the youngest son was bought by a lady of the place and his eldest by a merchant his youngest daughter eunice then seven or eight years old was at the mission of st louis or Kanawaga. vaudreuil sent a priest to conduct williams thither and try to ransom the child but the jesuits of the mission flatly refused to let him speak or see her williams says that vaudreuil was very angry at hearing of this and a few days later he went himself to cornawaga with the minister this time the jesuits whose authority within their mission seemed almost to override that of the governor himself yielded so far as to permit the father to see his child on condition that he spoke to no other english prisoner he talked with her for an hour exhorting her never to forget her catechism which she had learned by rote vaudreuil and his wife afterwards did all in their power to procure her ransom but the indians or the missionaries in their name would not let her go she is there still writes williams two years later and has forgotten to speak english what grieved him still more eunice had forgotten her catechism end of section six